Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from a panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, the workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Current Perspectives in Cancer Survivorship. This is such an important program um, that we're offering today. This workshop is one that I know is highly regarded by all of you on the call today, and um, it's just it's wonderful to be able to offer this program with such wonderful speakers. Um, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And because of that collaboration, we have been able to reach many of you on the call. We have over 300 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Australia, Bahrain, Canada, New Zealand, Norway, Oman, Philippines, Taiwan, Turkey, and the United Kingdom. So this is really a bit of a global call, actually, I would say, as well. Um, and uh, today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Pharmaceuticals LLC, an Abbey company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and Takeda Oncology. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I'm going to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Julia Rowland. Dr. Rowland is Senior Strategic Advisor at the Smith Center for Healing and the Arts. And Dr. Rowland will begin by addressing an overview and definition of cancer survivorship in the context of COVID-19 and living with uncertainty. It really is my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rowland. Thank you, Carolyn, for that lovely introduction. I'd like to add my welcome to that of Dr. Messner to all those on the call today and also express to Dr. Mesner my special thanks for the invitation to be part of this particular workshop. My role today, as she said, is to help set the stage for our conversation. I'm going to do this by focusing on two major lessons that we've learned from the growing population of those living with, through, and beyond cancer. The first is that language is important. With that in mind, I'm going to begin with a brief history of what we mean when we talk about someone who's had a cancer diagnosis. Back in 1986, or 34 years ago, in the United States, a group of two dozen individuals, including those who had been diagnosed with cancer, oncology healthcare providers, and a handful of leaders of programs or organizations providing support to these individuals and their families, all gathered in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and created what is now known as the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. At that time, the term cancer survivor was used only in reference to those individuals who, following treatment for cancer, remained disease-free or having no evidence of cancer for five or more years post-treatment. The coalition founders reflected that people couldn't put their lives on hold to see if they would live for five years. Even in that earlier period, more than half of those diagnosed and treated could be expected to survive five years, and many, if diagnosed as young people, live for years and even decades longer. A person could not wait five years to make decisions about fertility preservation or limb sparing or treatment with different toxicities. These were considerations that needed to be made before treatment began, and the maximum array of options remained available. So they argued passionately and with a compelling voice that a person should be able to call her or himself a cancer survivor from the moment of diagnosis and for the balance of that individual's life. There are three important points behind their championing of this revised definition of what it means to be a cancer survivor. First and foremost, they never meant it to be a label. Many people reject this definition when thinking of themselves. We don't talk about people who've had a heart attack as heart attack survivors or diabetes as diabetes survivors. Others do not feel like they survived something as challenging or as threatening as war or disaster or assault to warrant such a title. Still others feel that they more than survived their illness, but rather they see themselves as thrivers. 
while others do not wish to think about or dwell on this period of their lives at all and simply want to move on. Regardless of how one feels about the label survivor, the coalition founders did want to convey to those who have cancer a clear message of hope that there is good and meaningful life after cancer, no matter how long that life is, and that should be acknowledged and pursued. Third and most important of all, the founders wanted to change the dialogue between patients and their healthcare providers about cancer care. Specifically, they wanted to ensure that a conversation about care would occur before treatment started to help ensure that individuals received care that took their personal preferences, needs, and desires into consideration in the informed decision-making process. That the focus not solely be on cure, but would integrate quality of life goals. In the U.S., this redefinition helped to change the culture of care. While this has not been embraced universally, the growing number of cancer survivors around the world living longer has slowly shifted the focus of care to one in which attention is increasingly paid to the health span or how long a person can live in good health, not merely lifespan or length of survival of all of those treated. Language is important. And survivor and survivorship are two different terms. The term survivorship, which arguably starts at the time of diagnosis, is more often associated with concerns about what life is or will look like after definitive or primary treatment has been completed. This includes a focus on long-term and persistent effects of cancer, delayed occurring effects appearing months or years after the treatment ends, interventions to prevent and mitigate these adverse effects, and how and what cancer follow-up care should be delivered when, where, and by whom to maximize the health and well-being of those living with and beyond cancer. And you'll be hearing more about this from our following speakers. The second major lesson learned from survivors is that cancer is not over when treatment ends. Cancer and its treatments have the capacity to affect virtually every aspect of an individual's life, physical, emotional, cognitive, social, financial, existential. Some people experience few adverse effects, while others experience many. We're not very good yet at predicting who will be at greatest risk for some of these effects, although we are getting better. And our interventions to prevent and control these is improving, as the next two speakers will discuss. In terms of cancer's lessons, I have come to think of these differently in this era of COVID-19. A woman in one of my support groups recently reflected to us that living in this period felt like experiencing a crisis, here cancer, embedded within a crisis, the virus. Certainly the dramatic changes in all of our lives and concerns for risk of virus exposure, in particular among those who are older and carry a cancer history to identified high-risk groups, have made life far more stressful. And yet, I feel that in many respects, cancer survivors have much to teach us. First, many have become masters of living with uncertainty, dealing with the unknown. Second, they know intimately what it is like to have their world turned upside down overnight, whether it's hearing the words, you have cancer, or we're in the midst of a global pandemic. Third, Cancer survivors know what it is to try and find peace with a new normal. This is actually a term we've been using for over 20 years in the context of cancer to help people think about and adjust to life after cancer. It's now being employed to think about adaptation to life in the wake of the coronavirus. Fourth, survivors have shown us that most individuals manifest remarkable resilience in the face of trauma and challenge. But fifth, they have made it clear that achieving resilience and retaining a sense of well-being also depends on several other factors. These include the importance of being active in your care and recovery, having and using a support team or network, learning to be flexible and asking for help when needed, taking good care of yourself, showing self-compassion, and engaging in healthy lifestyles. Who would have thought cancer would be a valued teacher? But it has been for many and now could be so for all of us as we admire 
and try to emulate the coping of those who are living with, through, and beyond cancer. They have much to teach us. And they have skill sets honed through cancer experience that can serve them well now as we collectively survive and thrive through this pandemic. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Roland. That was outstanding, really. So, And also um, the lessons learned and, and how they've been applied to dealing with COVID-19. Thank you so much. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. Wow. And our next speaker is uh, Dr. Deborah Mayer. Dr. Mayer is Interim Director of NCI's Office of Cancer Survivorship, Division of Cancer Control and Population Sciences, National Institute, Francis Hill Fox Distinguished Professor, School of Nursing, Director, Cancer Survivorship, UNC Lineberger Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And Dr. Mayer will be addressing managing post-treatment side effects, late effects, and quality of life concerns, including fear of recurrence. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mayer. Why, thank you very much. And um, that was a wonderful uh, setup for all of our conversations today and so beautifully put, Dr. Olin. That was very nice. Um, I want to just talk about sort of what happens when treatment ends. For those of you who it ends for, some people are on treatment for the rest of their life, some for many, many years. Um, but I'm focusing more of my comments toward the active acute therapy when you've been newly diagnosed. And the most common forms of treatment, of course, are surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, and then other systemic therapies like immunotherapy or targeted therapies. Um, so much is dependent upon the type of cancer the person has as well as the type of treatment they have that may influence any kind of side effects they may have. When we talk about long-term effects, we talk about effects from the disease and treatments that don't go away after treatment ends. Um, a classic one of that is fatigue. Um, many people are very tired during treatment. We encourage being physically active, but the fatigue is very real, and it's very different than other kinds of being tired that you may have felt. That may get better over time, but it may not totally go away. That's what we mean by a long-term effect. A late effect is something that happens later as a result of the disease or treatment that you have. So for example, um, if you've had certain kinds of chemotherapy that may have toxicity with the heart or radiation to the chest, um, there, people may develop heart disease. Most of us have heart disease as well, but it may be um, from the treatment that makes that worse or makes that um, an issue for the person. So that's a late effect. It, it, it doesn't happen right away, and it may come later on. And it, it's very much driven by treatment. Um, so if you don't know what you may be at risk for, those are good questions to ask your doctors and nurses when you see them. And if they have not told you or written that down, um, it's something you should ask them to do is what are you at risk for based on what you've had, um, both in the short term and in the long term. There's a couple of other sites that you can go to if you develop your own survivorship care plan. You need to know the names of the drugs you were treated with, um, the type of cancer you have, and possibly the stage of cancer that you have. Um, and go to something called Oncolife, O-N-C-O-L-I-F-E. And that's oncolife.oncolink.org. And you can create your own survivorship care plan, which you'll be hearing more about in a little bit. But in doing that, by filling out the type of cancer you had and the treatment you had, it will give you a list of potential long-term and late effects. It doesn't mean you're going to get all of those. Um, but it will give you more of a comprehensive list. And another place you can go do that is a website called Journey Forward. And then you can find other information about some of those effects that you learn about at cancer.gov um, or cancer.org. The American Cancer Society or the National Cancer Institute has information about that. So you may see a long list of things, but you, because of your treatment, um, may only be at risk for some of those things and not all of those. So don't get too upset or worried about this long list until you've clarified with your doctors or nurses what it is you've had and what that might be. 
There are also newer ways that we're finding to try to prevent them or to minimize them and help you manage them. So, for example, one of the long-term effects may be numbness and tingling in your hands and feet from some chemotherapy drugs. They tend to get better over time, but after about a year or so, you may be stable at, you know, a reduced level of the peripheral neuropathies, which is what it's called. Um, but it may not totally go away or not go away in every area that you felt it. And that's the thing you will then have to learn how to live with because that may be a permanent late effect um, or long-term effect that you have. Um, so, again, there are some things that we're doing, such as exercising, that may help fatigue. There are some studies to look at whether exercise during treatment helps with peripheral neuropathies as well. And as that gets better, we'll be recommending them to people as they go through treatment as a way to prevent um, or minimize some of these effects that people experience. Some people get through scot-free and don't have any long-term issues. Other people seem to have everything in the book, but everybody's different. And so um, you're going to have to figure that out with your team, including your primary care provider, as you go along. Now, what that means is everybody wants the life they had before they were diagnosed, but because of what you go through, it does not mean that you're going to be able to get that whole life back exactly and I, uh, as it was. And you're going to be hearing more about finding your new normal. Most people say, I don't want a new normal. I want my old normal back. But it means lear learning to live your life with whatever effects that you may have physically or emotionally or spiritually or relationship-wise, and that may change. And that has to do with, you know, what's your overall quality of life going to be looking like. And so, again, your quality of life may be different. And I like to think about it from a model um, of quality of life of thinking about four buckets, one being how well you're doing with your physical well-being, another for your psychological well-being, another for your social well-being, and another for your spiritual well-being. And there's been different studies that show that even though you may have some physical effects that alter your physical well-being, you may have found new inner strength or strengthen your relationships or um, develop your spirituality more, and that compensates for the physical effects that you may find. So it's a sum of those four parts, and, and it may be that some are better and some are worse, and that composite is what makes up your overall quality of life. And so I usually tell people, during your diagnosis and treatment, it can take up to a year to get through treatment or get all this done. But it can take up to another year um, to recover physically and emotionally what you've been through. And so sometimes you're not going to know what that new normal or your new quality of life is going to look like for up to two years after you've been diagnosed and treated, which requires a lot of patience and um, periodic reflection as to how you're doing and trying to live a life that maybe facilitates a recovery for yourself. And that takes some planned thinking about what do you want to do differently than you had before. You might want to eat better or drink a little less or exercise a little more or um, do any number of things that may help you get refocused on what your quality of life is going to be. Another part of that quality of life um, that comes into act, um, perspective is most people worry about their cancer coming back. So that's not abnormal at all. Um, the fear of recurrence is natural because nobody can promise you your cancer is not going to come back. The risk of it coming back may be very low, but it's never quite zero. And so the difference between you and somebody else in the population is you are more aware that something else could happen again. Where most of us get out of bed and, and don't think about those kinds of things, that may be something you worry about. And what I have found has been helpful for the people that I have worked with is something, a, a framework that I have used, um, and, and it's called theory of illness in the sense that when you get diagnosed with cancer, um, there's 
cancer's in the front seat with you while you're driving and it's taken your GPS away and you don't know where you're going. You have to just tell, follow where the cancer tells you and it's, it's very unsettling. You're not in control. Um, you have somebody in the front seat with you you don't want there. Um, as treatment ends, cancer gets in the back seat, but you can still see it in the rear view mirror, but you have your GPS back and you either have nobody in the front seat or somebody you'd prefer to have there but it's in the rear view mirror. And then over time, it gets out of the car and you can only see it farther away to the point where at over time, sometimes years, it becomes a little speck on the horizon. However, when you're due to come back in for a checkup or to get it back for a test that you need to have, it will be back in the front seat with you. And that's very normal, which is it stirs up all those feelings, especially if you're going back to the same place you were diagnosed and treated at, um, just walking through the lobby of a hospital or the clinic may stir up feelings for you. Um, and that, again, is pretty normal because it brings back a lot of memories. They should go away, though, after you hear good news that your tests are all right and you're back and you don't have to come back for months or a year. That may make you feel okay, and now you're done with that. And again, cancer gets out of the front seat and is back to a speck on the horizon. That's what I consider very normal fear of recurrence. Some people, however, worry a whole lot more than that, and it really interferes with their ability to do the things they want to do or their overall quality of life. And what I would recommend for people who that's the situation is to seek out a mental health counselor or to ask for help about that. Um, because somebody can help walk you through all of those things um, to make that more manageable. But it never really total goes, totally goes away. And so just to realize that's a normal part of recovery and um, it's something that you should be aware of so that the week before you're due for big testing, like getting CAT scans or a new mammogram, is not the time to probably to make major life decisions like quitting your job or getting a divorce or buying or selling a house or things like that, but to wait till afterwards when you're not um, reliving all those concerns that you've had. Um, but for most people, it, it's a manageable thing. And the other thing I recommend is maybe after your appointments or visits, treat yourself to something nice, meet a friend for lunch or go for a walk in a garden or do something that will help you recenter yourself um, for having gone through yet another appointment. So those are, you know, an overview of some of the things that can happen to you after your treatment's over. For a lot of people, all of this becomes the new normal, which you'll be hearing more about, but it also becomes a little bit easier to live with as it becomes more familiar and less uncertain. And with COVID, we're all living to, learning to live with uncertainty about whether we're still having to stay in our house or leave or when this is going to be over or am I going to get it and how sick will I be. And, and in many ways, that parallels what people with cancer worry about, all the uncertainty with unanswerable questions. And as uh, Dr. Roland talked about, you will be teaching a lot of us about how to manage that better because you've been doing that for quite a while. So I, I'm looking forward to hearing to the other speakers, and hopefully you'll find some benefit from all these. Remember, you can always go to Oncolife or Journey Forward to create your own survivorship care plan. And two good websites for credible information is the National Cancer Institute at cancer.gov and the American Cancer Society, as well as the materials that are at Cancer Care, and which you've already found to be on this call, which have excellent support services and resources. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Mayer. That was really outstanding and, and, and really did um, help people to really recognize that, um, that the fear of recurrence is a part of dealing with uh, survivorship and uh, the putting it in perspective and then when to seek help. So it's really important. So thank you so much. Um, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Guadalupe Palos. Dr. Palos is Clinical Protocol Administrative Manager, Administration Manager, Office of Cancer Survivorship, University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Palos will be addressing the importance of survivorship treatment summaries and finding your new normal. 
it's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Pavos. Thank you, Dr. Messner, uh, for that introduction, and good afternoon to all of you listening in on this call. Dr. Rowland and Dr. Mayer discussed two topics that will also impact my discussion, particularly on the one on finding a new normal. The subject that Dr. Rowland discussed, uncertainty, will also impact this. So we have uncertainty and fear that are two of the topics that, are, again, are going to remain throughout my discussion. As noted uh, by both of our speakers, cancer survivors may have different levels of uncertainty and fear that remain with them for their entire life. So in that context, what are some of the tools and action steps a cancer survivor can use to cope with these feelings and thoughts? In the next few moments, I'm going to focus on two subjects that may help, the role of treatment summaries and care plans in a cancer survivor's life, and the second is then to share some tips on how to find that new normal. Survivorship, Dr. Rowland gave us a wonderful back history context or historical context of survivorship. And again, you know, one of the things that is important to note is survivorship was first introduced by a physician who described his own experience as going through phases of survivorship. And those phases were like acute, intermediate, and long-term. The acute, the goal was usually to achieve remission. And we've heard both of our speakers address the importance of that. The intermediate stage was looking more at the recovery from acute effects and then maintenance or re and remission again. And then the long-term goal was really expanded then, and that was to maintain health, obtain steady employment or employment in some way, and then to maintain functional and emotional well-being. So the concept of survivorship, again, received widespread recognition in the landmark Institute of Medicine report. And this was called From Cancer Patient to Cancer Survivor. And it is available on the Institute of Medicine website for free if some of you would like to kind of peruse that, that book. It has a, many interesting things in it. The IOM report recognized a dramatic increase, and it still continues, in the number of cancer patients and survivors. The report also identified key areas in health to monitor, and then they developed some standards to maintain the wellness of survivors. And with this report, there was an emergence of cancer survivorship care as a subspecialty. The IOM report also identified four key elements of cancer survivorship care. The first was cancer surveillance, and many of you are familiar with that. It's watching for newer recurrent cancers. The second was, again, as Dr. Mayer said, talking about or looking for late and long effects, and that is watching for the symptoms or other changes in your health. The third was cancer prevention and screening or health promotion activities, and those would be lifestyle changes uh, and participating in screening for second cancers. And the fourth one was looking at psychosocial issues, and that was keeping good mental health after cancer and getting back to a normal life. Now, that last one that I spoke about, psychosocial issues, is the one that uh, comes up again when we're talking about uncertainty and fear of, of recurrence. Each of these four elements were then organized into a document referred to as a treatment summary plan. But this document is, in fact, two different documents. And so there's two different documents that make up this treatment summary plan. The first is a history, so to speak, of your entire treatment over the course of your diagnosis. It provides the background, which can be shared with your primary care provider or other healthcare professionals is needed, as if needed. The second document is referred to as the survivor's care plan, and I believe this is the most important tool a survivor can use to maintain their own health and wellness. It provides a roadmap, so to speak, of action items one can proactively participate in and helps to gain the control of their health by incorporating several self-management strategies. This document also can be a tool for your healthcare providers because it gives them a profile of your journey and what your needs will be. At times it may be the survivor's role or even the family member or the caregiver's role to educate the provider, particularly if you return back to communities that maybe don't have uh, many oncologists readily available, um, you know, you're really isolated or whatever. But again, you may, be, you may be called upon to educate your provider by asking them about a treatment summary plan. 
if one is not given to you after the after your treatment or again maybe you can even bring your own treatment your own treatment summary plan that was developed at another facility and share that with your primary care provider when you receive this document remember to store it in a place where it may be easily accessible so you may use it as needed during your visit with your uh, you know your provider it could be an advanced practice provider it can be your own your primary care provider that you've known all your life but it's also, this is a tool that will help guide the discussion about, you know, what kind of screening do you need to participate in? What types of symptoms do you really need to watch for because of your particular cancer diagnosis? A survivorship care plan should be tailored to your own unique needs and, um, and wants that you can participate in. So remember, this is a roadmap for you to maintain some control over your life. So let's talk about a goal many cancer patients hear about across their cancer journey. And I'm referring to what is known as finding your new normal. What does that mean? The Webster's Dictionary's definition of normal is conforming to a type, a standard, or regular pattern. But in our current society, local or global, this definition is different for each person and becomes even more different for a person diagnosed with cancer. Why? because every individual has their own worldview of what normal life was before a cancer diagnosis. But that normal quickly changes when one is diagnosed to that, now what is normal for me as a cancer patient? And it's interesting and puzzling and confusing and frustrating that after treatment is completed, again, that definition of normal is changed because you've gone now from cancer patient to being a cancer survivor. So it seems that there's several stages of a new normal encountered across the trajectory of a cancer experience. And it seems that an individual living with cancer will also go in and out of the various stages of the norm. So it's a cycle, so to speak. And as Dr. Rowland and Dr. Mayer discussed, that world of uncertainty will impact the entire survivorship experience, including the different stages and the disruptions which accompany each stage and will continue to do so throughout the remainder of one's life. I would like to take a moment though to remind our callers that regular people, that is people that are, don't have a diagnosis of cancer, also encounter disruptions and they can be major ones that interrupt their normal life and force one to deal with unexpected events and forces them to find a new normal. Now, major disruptions in everyday life are not always bad. For example, it can be a marriage, it can be a birth, it can be relocating, it can be a new job, or even retirement. These are all examples of positive disruption. So in these cases, finding a new normal can be exciting, motivating, and something to look forward towards. So that is one thing to keep in mind as a cancer survivor. As you embark on each one of these stages, it becomes an adventure or an opportunity to deal with that disruption in some positive manner if possible. As was mentioned before by our other speakers, some survivors are able to return back to their normal way of living. However, studies indicate that a major worry of cancer survivors and most cancer survivors is recurrence of their disease or funding a new primary cancer and that uncertainty about what can I do in the future? What will my future look like? So their lives may be normal in some way, but they are affected still by these thoughts and feelings of the recurrence and the uncertainty. In other words, trying to achieve a new normal is most challenging. It can be especially challenging when there are body-altering effects resulting from diagnosis or treatments. These changes can be daily reminders of the cancer experience and can impede finding a new normal. In these situations, it is most helpful to find someone who can provide emotional support in your new normal. For instance, support groups are available by virtual conferences now thanks to COVID or by telephones. There are also uh, healthcare professionals you can turn to, like your psychotherapists, your social workers, psychologists, and others. And then there's also the clergy or the counselors from your faith-based group. And let's not forget one important source of support, and that's our family, friends, and trusted social networks. These individuals can be a source of emotional source, excuse me, emotional support and strength. 
The earlier one seeks help, the more likely they'll be able to develop their own sense of a new normal. And Dr. Fleischman is going to follow up and uh, talk about the types of questions and guidelines you can ask your oncologist about. Remember, survivors can live for decades with cancer in, in their cancer remission or even when they're cured. During that lifespan, survivors can achieve a new normal by being active members in their long-term care planning, their wellness activities, and maintaining their emotional health. There are also a few action steps that you can take, and I'd like to share some of the tips that are given to me by patients and survivors. Well, the first one, as I say, is always remember your mind and body still need a lot of rest to recover from all you've been through. So rest when needed. And that applies to someone who just completed treatment or someone who has been a long-term survivor five, 10, or even 20 years out. Find a primary care provider that you trust and that you know will be able to provide care for you and is knowledgeable about caring for a patient who is a cancer survivor. Be a self-advocate in managing your own health. Keep tabs of any changes in your body. Maintain your wellness by participating in annual checkups. Uh, screening activities, and become involved in energy balance activities such as exercise and eating healthy. And use your survivorship care plan as a roadmap for maintaining health and wellness. In closing, I'd like to remind our listeners that finding your new normal after cancer may be complicated at times and may often take months or even years. Finding a new normal is a healing process for your body, mind, and spirit. Finding the new normal is a phrase, but more important, it's the beginning of a new adventure, one filled with decisions that must be worked on each day. So be patient and be good to yourself in achieving this goal. This concludes my remarks. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Taylor. What a wonderful way to conclude remarks. Just being good and kind to yourself. That's so important. And I know there'll be questions for you, and I know you also um, – you know, if there are also, I know Dr. Bale is always, um, in addition to questions, if someone wants to make a comment um, during the Q&A or um, ask about what has worked for them, we're very open to hearing about your comments as well. So thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Palos. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is former founding director, Cancer Support Services, Continuing Cancer Centers of New York, author and researcher in oncology. Dr. Fleischman will be addressing current trends in follow-up care with your oncologist and primary care doctor about your survivorship questions and concerns, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine visits so you may focus on key questions to ask your healthcare team. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you as well to Dr. Rowland and Dr. Mayer and Dr. Palos for trying to bring a lot of information in in a simple and very straightforward way. Um, uh, the remarks that I prepared for today may have been different a year or even eight months ago, but now with the COVID-19 uh, crisis on our hands, uh, in addition to feeling as a new normal, we are approaching our, our care from our providers in a slightly different way, and I will try to adjust the things that we would usually talk about and recommend um, into our new normal. Um, you going for a doctor visit or a visit with one of our providers, uh, uh, of, of many of the providers in our treatment care team, used to be somewhat straightforward. It meant traveling to their office, to the cancer center, meeting with them, and taking away some information um, and maybe having your questions answered and maybe not all of them. With the uh, current situation that we're in and uh, when we're trying to minimize the in-person interaction between uh, patients and providers and patients and families and providers and families, we're doing a lot uh, more virtually than ever before. So a visit now may be a telehealth visit on your telephone or your tablet or your computer where you can communicate with your provider um, through video and audio over the Internet. It may be a phone call uh, where the video isn't um, available. Um, my personal experience is that the phone call often works best when you've met each other beforehand. It's hard to uh, to work 
uh, on audio only when you don't know what each other looks like and don't know what the expressions are, but we're forced to do that these days um, until the the communicable aspect of the COVID-19 virus actually becomes better defined and we know how we can safely meet in person. The third way this may happen is on a portal. A portal would be a uh, and, and patient and fa or patient's entry into the electronic medical record in the provider's office or in the medical center or cancer center where the provider works, where lots of information can be exchanged between patients and their providers and provider to provider. Um, those often have video conferencing or video and audio capabilities, and some visits are uh, conducted through them because they have a pretty high level of security. So the way we approach this is very different than it was before. And I expect that if Dr. Messner schedules a repeat of this in the coming months, that the information that we'll be dealing with it may be slightly altered, but uh, we're doing the best we can now to make sure that the information is useful to you. So the, the key questions that I would think uh, come up routinely in whatever medium, face-to-face, -face, on the phone, through a video chat, or through a video conference on a portal, um, when, you're, when you're thinking about what happens next after cancer treatment uh, is over, um, you've heard very clearly that the treatment relationship doesn't end, even though the treatment itself may be coming to an end. Um, lots of time and effort is spent in maintenance. So the the questions with, uh, that uh, I've I've seen patients ask, and we've encouraged patients to ask, is what do I need to do? And becoming familiar with the tests that are necessary to take for to make sure that that uh, a, if a recurrence or relapse happens, it can be detected as quickly as possible. Um, what tests need to be done to look for secondary cancers, cancers that may occur more frequently because someone has had cancer once, um, or to maintain the conditions, health conditions not related to cancer, but that may have been affected by cancer and cancer treatment. So um, someone mentioned before about the nerve ending problem that can happen after cancer treatment. Well, for someone with diabetes who may have some nerve ending trouble, the approach may be somewhat different. So uh, these worlds come together when it comes to dealing with uh, the kinds of things everybody needs to do after treatment. So basically finding out what tests do I need, how often do we need to make visits, and that's a harder question to answer under this current condition. Um, what kinds of things do I need to do to self-monitor? Um, sometimes um, we have seen patients who have, let's say, had breast cancer and will faithfully do a, um, a, a self-exam of either the remainder of their breast or their other breast. Occasionally we have seen an extreme where someone will do that a few times a day. That's not recommended. Uh, so finding out exactly what you need to do to self-monitor, how often you should be looking at the area, where else you should be looking, the kinds of things that you should be doing. But the biggest issue are what changes do I need to make in my daily routine? These are the things that none of us really would like to hear about, but they are eminently important after cancer treatment, and that includes use of tobacco and other drugs. Uh, what kinds of foods do I need to be eating to maintain my ideal body weight, to keep up my strength, uh, to keep up my energy, to keep up my muscular function and reduce the chance of recurrence or relapse in the future? The other sort of unpopular thing is what kind of activity do I need to do? How active do I need to be? How many steps a day do I have to, to walk? What kinds of things do I need to do to build muscle, retain muscle, and retain flexibility? Very, very important and often left just to chance ask about it. And the other thing that we rarely ask about is how can I get really good sleep? <laughs> Harder as we all get older, but the kinds of things that I can do during the day as restful um, periods, if that's a nap, if that's um, visualization, progressive muscle relaxation, whatever that would be. So um, use of substances, 
diet, activity, and rest and sleep, really, really important questions about what I could do as a patient. The next set of questions, what do I expect my providers to do? And most of our patients say, we want you to make sure that we don't get cancer again, or if we get it, it's found very early. And that, again, involves what kinds of tests need to be done at what interval, how that interval changes over time. The interval may be a lot shorter after treatment ends and may extend over months or years afterwards. Uh, what things do I need to monitor? What things are you going to monitor? How often do I need a scan to check my heart? How often would I need... Um, breathing tests, uh, and the list goes on and on and on. But knowing what kinds of tests are expected to be ordered and at what, at what interval over what period of time is important information so you can help plan for your health maintenance. Put your attention where it's necessary and go on living in the new normal, but having put, a, put a, this a bit aside so you can focus on the kinds of things that make life interesting and fun. Um, other questions, who will oversee this? Is it my oncologist or my primary care provider? If it's my oncologist, which oncologist? I've had many. I've had a surgeon. I've had a radiation oncologist. I've had a medical oncologist. There are many other uh, specialists that I've, I've seen um, throughout my cancer treatment. Who's in charge of this? Um, Next question, how will they communicate with each other? It used to be that people saw each other in the hallway, um, either going to, to, on rounds to see patients in the hospital or going to conferences. That's not happening as much anymore. So how will they communicate? Do they talk to each other on the phone? Do they send each other text messages? Um, do they um, uh, share an electronic medical record where they can communicate with each other? Do they fax reports back and forth? Or is it the patient and family's responsibility to carry either paper copies or electronic copies and a flash drive or a disk from one office to another? We could probably spend an hour or more discussing if that's fair or if that's the best way to do things. But in the fractured environment that we practice now, sometimes that is the default choice. Uh, so find out how the, uh, your, your, your providers are going to be communicating with each other back and forth. And I, I think a lot of information has been given already about how do I find out about all this? Um, your provider's office, uh, especially those who work at comprehensive cancer centers, accredited cancer centers where there are lots of other people around who can help reinforce this message. Some of this um, you find out there, but uh, uh, many of our patients, especially when they feel like they haven't gotten good information from the providers, go online and read. Please read trusted sites. There's a lot of bad information out there. There's a lot of good information out there. Read the good information on trusted sites. There are a number of educational opportunities. Again, those used to be in person. Now many are online. Some are on the phone, as we're doing today. Some are on the Internet um, that are um, audio, audio and visual, not just reading information, or um, as you will hear about, to consider a support group. So in um, a very short time, I think these are the kinds of questions that you need to ask, uh, that you need to think about, that your providers need to be able to answer, and you're hearing about lots of ways that you can get information um, in, from trusted sources, good information, if those questions are not answered by your healthcare team. I will stop here. Thank you, Dr. Messner, for including me in today's uh, seminar. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really excellent. Thank you. And I'm going to, um, in an excellent presentation, I have to say, in a lot of important areas that you covered, so thank you. Um, I'm going to just say a few words about cancer care services, and then we're going to take questions. So please um, get ready because our speakers are here to answer your questions as well. So I will try to take as many of your questions as possible. I'm Carolyn Mester. I'm an oncology social worker, and I'm director of education and training with Cancer Care. I just wanted to go over with you uh, the, the services at Cancer Care, the programs and services offered by Cancer Care. They are free. Um, we offer practical, and they're national in scope as well. They are, um, we do offer financial and practical assistance. The financial assistance is for people in the U.S. If people internationally have financial questions, they certainly can pose them um, to our, um, our staff. We will try to find resources for you. Um, 
And we also do offer support to people, a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers about your concerns or questions and help to connect you to services that would be helpful to you. Um, We also do have a whole system of really, um, if we don't have what you need, of of really connecting you to places that do have them. Uh, We're talking about a very national, uh, large country of lots of different resources, and so we definitely um, certainly want to um, be sure that we're, um, you know, where we have all the resources you need, whether they be locally or whether you participate in some of our own national resources as well. Um, you can contact Cancer Care um, by either calling our Hope Line at 1-800-813-4673 or visiting our website at www.cancercare.org. And for our international participants, you may post on our website your questions and concerns, and actually people in the U.S. may do the same. And for people in the U.S. who wish to call our 800 number, we do have staff designated oncology social workers there to address and answer your questions um, and, and help you. So um, that's, that's a, a wonderful resource for all of you. And now we have time for questions, and so I'm going to ask Norma to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to move on to our questions. And um, Norma, if you can explain to everybody how to cure for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Norma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press stars and on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, to ask a question, please press star, then number one. Excellent. Um, And we have some questions from our online participants. Um, So this uh, question here is... um, So this question is for Dr. Palos to start. What is a survivorship care plan? Uh, A survivorship care plan is a document that can be given to you by your oncology nurse or your oncologist, Um, but it can also be developed by you you yourself through the sites that Dr. Mayer mentioned. One was Journey Forward, and I believe the other was Oncolog. So it, it consists of two documents. One is the treatment summary that has all the information about your previous treatment. And then the second part is what they call the care plan part. The care plan part usually consists of recommendations for screening um, and what types of, uh, how, to, how often do you need to take it, you know, to take the new uh, procedures like uh, mammograms, colonoscopies, things of that nature. Um, has information about your vaccinations because cancer survivors need to keep up with their vaccinations just like everyone else. It has recommendations for health promotion, as mentioned by all of our speakers, eating healthy, exercising, um, things of that nature. It also provides referrals to other um, healthcare professionals. For example, for uh, information on employment, for information on financial needs. Uh, It also can be a referral to someone who can help with psychosocial issues that are going on like this. You know, if you have an intense fear or worry about the recurrence or the uncertainty that's surrounding your life. So it's a, that's why I mentioned that to me, that is the most important document because that is the roadmap of a, of a, for a survivor on how they can maintain their health and wellness. And it provides a lot of information in one small document. So I would encourage our callers to try to go to those sites so you can get a glimpse of what some of these treatment summary plans look like. And so you'll have an idea of what to ask your provider for when you go in to see them. Excellent. And we will be providing – oh, sorry, yes. I'm sorry to interrupt. It's Dr. Rowland. I just wanted to add to Dr. Hillis' comment that the, the survivorship care plan has two components to it. One is the treatment summary aspects, which talks about your cancer and all the specifics with regard to the nature of the cancer and the treatments received, and then the actual uh, follow-up care plan. So they're really, it's a, it's a wonderful living document that's meant to accompany you and to provide you information that will change over time as you um, have different health status and as you age. So those are, that's very important. I will also note that the Journey Forward site does no longer exist. 
that has been taken off the web, unfortunately. But if you write in or type in Cancer Survivorship Care Plan, it will take you to other sites. One in particular is the American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, has wonderful information for building a care plan. So just so you know, there are resources online. Actually, that's so perfect. Thank you so much uh, uh, for for these uh, responses because actually all the resources that have been given today on the program will be, um, when you get your evaluation form in about two days, um, in the evaluation form we do want your feedback, of course, but you'll also get all of the resources we've provided during the call. We will give you the links to them, the numbers connected to them, and we will also give you some additional organizations as well that um, partner with us that have been mentioned during the call today. So just so you all understand that you'll be getting um, this information that you can follow up with. It's very important. One should have this. And we have another question now for Dr. Mayer. So I'm not sure why I always feel so tired. Is fatigue normal for cancer survivors, and what can I do? So although you addressed this in part, if you could say a little bit more about this for this particular caller. Absolutely. Fatigue is the number one symptom cancer survivors claim, um, and and it's a very difficult thing. It's sort of like um, you're missing your reserves. Usually people after a good night's sleep may feel rested in the morning. Sometimes cancer-related fatigue does not make you feel rested. Um, it never totally goes away. And so what you want to do is analyze your own pattern of fatigue. Is it worse in the morning? Is it worse in the afternoon? What makes it better? What makes it worse? And then just try to adjust your activities to that. So, for example, if you have an important event in the evening and you know you run out of steam around 4 or 5, you might want to take a nap um, before the evening event or not schedule many things during the day to to protect your energy levels. It is something you have to think about, like putting money in the bank and taking money out. If you don't put money in the bank, you're not going to be able to withdraw. Um, so that you have to think of that as a commodity, your energy, that you have to store, and when you use it, you have to replenish it. Um, so physical activity is the one thing that is known to increase people's energies, even with cancer fatigue. And so if you're currently not active, including just walking, walking is a wonderful thing to do. And if you don't walk very much, you can do, you know, walk a certain distance for five or 10 minutes and the next day do 10 or 15 and the next day 20. And what you really are aiming for is to walk about 20 to 30 minutes at least every single day. Um, and, and maybe more on some days and less on others or some other kind of physical activity like getting a, a bicycle or a treadmill or an elliptical or just walking around the block in your neighborhood um, if that's feasible for you. So the other is to maintain a normal bedtime routine so that you don't stay up really late or sleep in really long and um, keeping that steady even over the weekends. And then if you need to take a nap, do not take one that's hours long because that will make you feel groggy and, and not as refreshed as you will with a shorter one. So, for example, when I need a power nap, I will set my alarm and do 30 or 45 minutes and then get up, and that will restore me. Um, but the fatigue from cancer definitely feels different, and you, you start wondering, is there something wrong with me? Um, and it's certainly good to have a good checkup so somebody can check your thyroid levels and other kinds of things. But again, fatigue is the most common um, complaint that cancer survivors have. Thank you. And we have a question from one of our telephone participants, um, Norma. Jennifer G., your line is open. Please ask your question. Oh, hi. Um, I have a question for Dr. Palos, and this may go in the resources when it's mailed out, but um, she mentioned Institute of Medicine, a specific survivorship report that we could view for free online. What was the name of that report? Sure. sure. That, um, that was the Institute of Medicine report that called From Cancer Patient to Cancer Survivor. So if you Google or you just put in the website from cancer patient to patient survivor, um, 
patient survivor, cancer survivor, it should bring it up. And then it will let you uh, download chapters or you can download the whole book if you'd like. Great. Thank you, you so may, much. And you may have to register, but that's just so they can keep track of who's accessing the website and what books they're getting, okay? But there is no fee. Great. That's a great resource to everybody. Thank you. Thanks. Great question. And we have another telephone question, I believe, as well. Our next question is from Angela T. Your line is open. Oh, hi. I still go for testing every three months, right? And it's been two years now. But I'm a bit of a stress eater, so how could I uh, help manage that? <laughs> Sorry. Well, thank you for that question. Dr. Rowling, could you address that? Sure. I mean, I think if you're if you're on a schedule of of every three months, you have to expect that you're going to have some higher anxiety levels. If you're starting to worry a month ahead of your visit, it gets to the point where Dr. Mayer was talking about the fact that you might want to learn some relaxation techniques and recognize that those follow-up visits tend to be stress triggers uh, and cut yourself a little bit of slack around those. But they shouldn't be preoccupying you all the time. It's that goal to try and get the cancer to be somewhere in the distance in your car. I love that analogy. Um, park it back somewhere. If it's in the front seat all the time with you, you might want to see about whether counseling would be helpful. And also talk with your clinician about when you might transition away from every three months to maybe every six months. Could that be a possibility for you, given your particular circumstance? Excellent. And Dr. Roland makes such an excellent point that your center, of course, in addition to your physician, includes so many other health care providers, including oncology nurses, oncology social workers, patient navigators, people to help with these concerns that you have, um, dietitians, really lots of people that you can see. Um, and so uh, physical therapists, lots of people you can see um, and so ask about that and let your healthcare team know that you're having these experiences. And I have, this will be our last question. After say, stage, this would be for Dr. Um, for Dr. Fleischman, after stage three HER2 positive breast cancer three years ago, treatment is complete. What is follow-up testing and absence of symptoms? So if you could answer this in a general way in terms of, uh, you know, just uh, a follow-up when you're not psychomatic. Yeah, that, that's um, a difficult question to answer in general. Uh, follow-ups would include, and depending upon your other health conditions, if you're healthy, if they're something, another, another health problem that you've had even before the cancer would include uh, visits to your uh, healthcare team, uh, maybe the oncologist, it may be the advanced practice nurse, or physician's assistant, it may be the breast surgeon, it, it depends. And I'm not trying to be vague, but there's no one formula for everybody. It really is somewhat individualized. But visits, um, some now may be virtual, some obviously in person, scans, um, whether that's a, a mammogram of both sides, one side, hard to know. Um, visits with a gynecologist, perhaps to check uh, for HPV um, in a cervical exam and pap smear, um, uh, maybe um, uh, it's hard, to, it's hard to, to know what other circumstances are, but visits to those sorts of professionals, some tests, um, possibly uh, scan to check if the chemotherapy that you may have had, and I don't know what you've had, um, has had any effect on heart or other organs, those kinds of um, activities that may be spaced out over longer periods of time as you move further away from the end of treatment. And um, as I mentioned before, it also includes the kind of things that you can do for yourself that your treatment team can't do for you as far as activity and exercise, good sleep and rest, and the proper nutrition. And um, you, it, it is hard to expect your team to be able to have all that information at this specifically for you, but they can recommend a good physical medicine rehabilitation specialist or physical therapist or personal trainer, depending upon your needs, a good nutritionist who understands about cancer. <laughs> um, and um, many disciplines can teach relaxation exercises. And it's a, that's a lot of things to do. 
Um, but that's often the success to really moving beyond the cancer and getting back to a really good quality of life if that's possible. And so actually, as recommendation here is you would take all that you've learned today back to your treating healthcare team and, and ask them the exact same question um, so that um, and you've got some guidelines uh, from this call today from Dr. Fleischman and from all the speakers, but we would like you to take this back to your treating healthcare team. I actually want to thank all of our speakers. They have been phenomenal. I also want to ask, thank all of you who have asked questions both on, on the telephone, which really enhances our call. Um, really, um, it really gives a chance to have a bit of a dialogue between um, our participants and our speakers. It's really important, so we thank you for that as well. Um, and I, I know there are many more questions in queue, so I, I do want to wrap this up. Uh, however, I do want to say a few things that hopefully will be helpful to you. Um, it, for those of you who asked a question during the call or heard someone else's question and made you think of another question or still have questions, your healthcare team is always, of course, the best place to ask your questions, um, whether it be you pick them up, call them up on the phone, tell them you have some questions you want to ask them, set up an appointment, whether it be a telehealth visit or depending on where you are in the country, whether they're seeing people in their offices, you would just determine that with them or in the world what, what would be the best way for you to get that help. But certainly calling on the phone is a very good way first to start with you have some questions you need to have answered. Um, and then um, it's important that um, you get the information that you need. And your healthcare team does consist of lots of different people, and they also know you very well, and they can refer you to others on that team. And for those of you who still have medical questions, we've given you a number of resources to contact for credible information, and you'll be getting that in your evaluation forms when you get those as well in about two days, actually. And for those of you who wish to pursue services from Cancer Care, you may either call us on the telephone or visit us on the website uh, for those services. Most importantly, as we conclude our call today, we do not want any one of you to feel alone. Well, it is true that with social isolation and indeed with just sometimes feeling alone, it is normal to feel alone. But we don't want you to feel so alone that you don't realize that there are lots of resources out there for you. Many organizations, Cancer Care being one of them, there are many nonprofit organizations that are out there that can help you. Your healthcare team can help you. And so we want you to know that although you may feel terribly alone, know that there are places you can call um, to get assistance and help. Um, and that's really most important. Um, and I actually want to thank you all for your participation today. Um, I want to wish you all a very fine day, and thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may not disconnect. Everyone have a wonderful day.